Well, a good evening to you all. It is uh, really terrific to be here together tonight. And uh, I've got a couple of answers to some of your questions. And uh, you will see them up on the screen. The way that you ask them, of course, is by getting yourself the response slip, tearing it off from the back like this, and filling it in. And uh, I've got a few questions from last week, and there's a few more up my sleeve for next week as well. The first one of this. If we model our church on Acts chapter 2, verse 42, then why don't we also share fully in our possessions? Well, what does Acts chapter 2, verse 42 say, in case you don't have perfect memory of the entire Bible? It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Uh, what we've got in that verse is a terrific summary of um, kind of what a church should be like. And what's important to realise, though, is that it's out of the book of Acts. And what the book of Acts is, is it's a, it's a history of what happens. It describes what the church was like, but it doesn't necessarily prescribe what the church must be like. We've got to get that clear because there was, to put it bluntly, there was some weird stuff happening in the opening moments of the church there. And not all of it is what we should expect today. Uh, so with that in mind, we've got those things there. A few verses later it says, They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. So should we do the same as well? Well, again, it's describing what they did. It doesn't mean that we have to do it. But it may well be that out of grace we want to have that same sort of spirit of generosity. As I see that spirit of generosity around here. It's not something that we need to have that we'll hit, around, hit each other around the head and say, we are not doing exactly this. So that's a, you know, we're, we're disobeying God in that sense. But I think this level of generosity here is something that we can certainly aspire to and something that was considered to be a beautiful thing. But question two, related to that, doesn't Acts chapter 4 verse 32 suggest that the early Christians had no personal ownership of possessions? Remember, if you were here with us last week, I, I said that that in this time of the book of Acts, they still had ownership of their possessions, but they recognised the benefit in selling them or selling many of them and giving them to the church, the apostles, to then give out to the poor. Uh, when I said that, what do you do with this particular verse that says, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. Well, what do you do with that? Well, if you look a bit more closely, uh, it, it does actually say there that they felt that what they owned was not their own, or, or another translation, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They were their own, but they got to the point where they didn't really care so much for ownership in, a, in, a, in this particular sense, in this particular time. They were just, it was kind of like, well, we're all in this together, it doesn't matter how much we own or how much we have, we're just going to throw it all into the common pot and, in, and share it with each other. And does this mean that they have to do it that way and we have to do it that way today? I don't think it does. Uh, in thinking about this, John Stott, who's a, a great famous theologian, uh, he, he, his book on Acts provides a really helpful perspective. He says this, We shall be wise to avoid extreme positions. We have no liberty to dismiss it as a rash and a foolish mistake motivated by the false expectation of an imminent parousia 
You're thinking, what on earth is an imminent parousia? That is that, that they're expecting that Jesus is going to come back like tomorrow or the next day. And because they were certain it was a short period of time, they just thought, oh, well, we'll throw everything we have away. Nor, he says, can we say, however, that the Jerusalem church, being filled with the Spirit, laid down an obligatory model, a kind of primitive Christian communism, which God wants all Spirit-filled communities to copy. These are the two extremes. So what, should, what we should surely do, he says, instead, is to note and seek to imitate the care of the needy and the sacrificial generosity which the Holy Spirit created. I think he nails it there. So what he's saying basically is the book of Acts was a weird time and they were over the top in a lot of things. Now, do we do it exactly the same way or do we feel we have to do it exactly the same way? Uh, not necessarily. But what we should be inspired by and excited by is the opportunity, he says here, to imitate the care of the needy and the sacrificial generosity that the Holy Spirit created. Question three. Is Acts chapter 5 the only place in the Bible that we learn that the Spirit is God or does it reaffirm other teachings? Well, it does mention in other parts of the Bible that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God. Uh, and there are verses, uh, for example, if you look around 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 8, there are bits in there that will point to the fact that the Spirit is in fact God. But there's something about chapter 5 that we looked at last week that seems to really nail it. It says, don't you realise that you've lied against God? And then it says a few verses later, don't you realise that you've lied against the Spirit? And so you put two and two together and you get the fact that the Spirit is indeed God. Question 4. Would the flogging of the apostles be the same as that which Jesus endured? Uh, yes, it is likely. It's likely that the apostles, the 12 of them, as they were whipped after they were warned to not talk about Jesus at all, that they had the famous 40 lashes minus one that Jesus endured before his crucifixion. You know, they, they the apostles, could actually say, we wear on our own bodies the marks of that Christ had because they had the same whipping, the same beating that they had from the floggings. Verse, uh, question number five. If we act independently due to our free will, then how can God have a plan for our lives? We've had a similar question to this in the past in many different ways. It's a, it's a challenge that we constantly try and get our heads around because the Bible does teach this, that God has a plan for our lives and that he's going to make that plan happen according to his sovereign will. And then when we look back in life, we can say, thank you, Lord, that you led me to this place and that you made X, Y, and Z happen and that it's all unfolded as it is right now. At the same time, the Bible makes it very clear that we need to make choices in life and that we will be held responsible for those decisions. So how can the two things be true at the same time? Well, the Bible has no trouble holding the two together. The Bible speaks of both as true at the same time. And I think our experience matches this. I've mentioned this example before, but I'll say it again. Think of Judas. Judas is the guy who made the decision, his own will, his own choice, that he would accept 30 pieces of silver in order to hand over Jesus. He knew he did it, and when he recognised how stupid he was, he was so upset that he then went and committed suicide. He was racked with guilt because he knew that he had consciously made a decision to hand over Jesus. But at the same time, 
We read in the scriptures that it was always going to happen and that he was always going to do it and that God made it happen. And what's more, that he is actually guilty of that decision, Judas. Both of them are held together very clearly in the scriptures. And so because the Bible holds them together, we should do the same. Two to come. How can we be more focused on our relationship with Jesus? Well, the best way to do this is to spend more time with him. You see, Jesus speaks to us through his word, by his spirit. See, if I want to get to know one of you guys better, I'll say, hey, we should have a coffee together or we should, we should sit down and talk about how you're going and, and, and just converse over, a, over dinner after church or something like that. Same with Jesus. We can be more focused on our relationship with Jesus as we spend time with him, as we read the Bible, as we pray to him. And that's why it's a really good routine habit to, to spend each day a little bit of time with Jesus. You know, there's a, some Bible notes that are called Every Day with Jesus. And then how do you spend time with Jesus? Well, you look, read the Bible. That's how it works. And so I've got a bit of a routine each day that as my phone makes the alarm sort of noise and I, you know, I get my phone out and I switch over to the app and there's a Bible reading plan in my app and I'll read um, a few different bits from the Bible and then I'll pray after that. That's just a routine that I've got into uh, and I think it's a really good routine for everybody at some time in the day to spend a moment reading a bit of the Bible and reflecting to God and praying on that. That keeps us focused, doesn't it? And question seven, the final one, what should we do if we become distracted from following Jesus? It's really easy to get distracted, isn't it? Um, I think an easy way to be distracted from following Jesus is to stop meeting with Christians. There are, there are many times in the Bible that we're warned to not give up meeting with others, as some are in the habit of doing, but that we should meet with each other. Now, we don't do that so that God will find favour with us. There are some people who say the reason you go to church is so that God will be pleased with your attendance. Uh, it's kind of like he's got some sort of role that they mark, like at school. And if you've got enough ticks next to your name, then he'll be really, really happy with you. And if you've missed quite a bit and you get your report card at the end of the year and it says Sundays or Saturdays missed and 15, you say God's not happy with you. It doesn't work that way. The way it works is that if you've come to Jesus and said, I'm sorry for how I've lived, I follow you as my king, then you are his friend. Now, what happens next is you want to keep focusing on him. And how do you do that? One of the best ways is to meet together. To come together and to be here on Saturday nights, to be meeting together midweek, to go to school lunchtime groups, to, to meet with family members and pray, to whatever it is, to be doing that will actually help us to avoid being distracted from Jesus and to pray that God, in fact, by his spirit, would lead us to focus on Christ. Good questions. I love how there's some to do with the Bible passage from last week. Then there's a couple of sort of doctrine kind of, you know, how does predestination fit in? And then there's how do I live as a Christian? They're all sort of mashed in together. They're terrific. Keep asking them any of those kind of questions. I'm happy to answer. And I love, in fact, the opportunity to share with you the answers to those as I've brought them to you.